Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Okay, the Trial Brief is back and better than ever. Uh, I took a short sabbatical, so thank you for uh, being patient and uh, for being here. I have some great stuff lined up for you this year. I've got some really interesting and informative pieces coming up. So welcome back, everybody. And I can't think of a better way to kick off the return of the trial brief than to speak with a reporter who I have followed pretty much religiously over the years when she was with Courthouse News and now is senior staff writer at the Daily Co's, Brandy Buckman. And Brandy, welcome to the trial brief. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I've been trying to get you on for some time, and finally we get to do this. Yes, I know. It was meant to be this time. I'm glad that it worked out. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. First of all, I want to congratulate you on your new gig at the Daily Coast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's a really lovely staff, and I'm glad to be there. You know, as you know, we've talked about it, and I've loved your work at Courthouse News, and I think you've stepped it up quite a bit. Thank you so much. I look at journalists almost as I'm a trial lawyer by trade. I look at us being very similar in ways in our instincts, uh, Mm -hmm. what drives us, you know, we're driven by evidence, we're driven by facts. And absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and I I, I sort of have like a, I feel a kindred spirit with that. And especially with what you do with following, whether it's congressional issues, you know, political issues at the White House, courthouse. I mean, I know you have followed many a civil suit, read many a, a pleading and many documents. So we have a lot in common that way. And what I'm curious about with you is how did you become interested in journalism and, and what, if anything, inspired you to be a journalist? First, just want to say I really appreciate that. And also, I've had this same thought myself. Um, incidentally, I think it was during Donald Trump's first impeachment and I was waiting for the verdict to be read. And I remember standing in the press gallery in the house, looking at all of these people in this room together. And it had been a very long uh, period at that point in terms of reporting more than 12 hours a day and just so much high pressure stuff in a very tense environment. And I remember looking around at all of the lawmakers and all of the lawyers and all of the reporters. And I turned to my colleague and I literally said to him, you know, we're all cut from the same cloth because you have to be, I think, a certain kind of person or a certain kind of crazy to want to sort of sign up for this every day. It really is that. I think it's a pursuit of truth and fact and information and sort of understanding and analyzing the things that are happening in our world. For me, you know, I don't think I ever predicted that I would be doing DC politics uh, as my journalism beat. I started out in classifieds at a local paper in New York and sort of just begged my way up the ladder and worked very hard and told them I wanted to be a writer and they let me do that. So I started out with Arts and Living and eventually when I got to Courthouse News years later, you know, it sort of dawned on me that so much of the news that happens starts in courthouses across the country and a lot of it sort of goes unnoticed or it's not really unpacked. And the more that I got into that, you know, the more interested I became in it. And it just became something that I really enjoyed. And I think that now with Daily Co's, as you mentioned, like it's kind of opened up a little bit, I would agree. And I think that part of that is because I've been given a little bit more liberty to sort of write about the things that really interest me and 
I think, matter for the public to understand. So it's just a, a deep desire to want to do a public service by people, to be perfectly honest. Well, good for you. I've, I've always been really grateful, uh, very well, great, very grateful for your profession. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously super crucial and, and under attack more than, more than ever. I appreciate that. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, but the, the, the most important reason is that I've been I've been captivated a little bit by your reporting on January 6th on the on the insurrection on our capital. And you've written some really powerful pieces, I think, on this. And and you were covering this from the ground, right? I mean, you were there. Yes, that's correct. Um, my colleague and I, Jack Rogers, who's now with Law 360, we used to work over at Courthouse News together. And uh, indeed, you know, we were assigned to cover the certification. We covered the impeachment together, covered everything with Trump world pretty intimately. We were assigned to go cover certification that day. You know, our situation was not nearly as dangerous or as dire as a lot of people who were forcibly stuck in the Capitol uh, when that whole thing happened. But yeah, it's been it's been a while. So I'd really, you know, I enjoy this beat because it does have an arc for me. You know, it started somewhere and I'd like to see it all the way to the end. When did it dawn on you? If it has at all, I'm sure it has. But when did it dawn on you that you were present during one of the most consequential events of our lifetimes? You know, it's it's funny because when we, and I, I wrote about this in a piece for Daily Kos when I talked about uh, my specific experience that day. And over a series of a couple of hours that morning, things just sort of unraveled. I had a camera that didn't work. I had many backup batteries. I couldn't get the camera to come on. We were specifically there to take photos of the crowd. And I think that I realized that things were happening in a in a really drastic fashion right around the time that I had sort of realized that there were a lot of folks around us who were wearing, you know, white supremacists or Nazi paraphernalia. And I think it was just in that moment that I sort of figured out that things were not going to go in a very positive direction. You can sort of feel uh, an energy in a crowd like that. I had spent um, the entire summer covering the George Floyd protests before that. And I was in a lot of crowds, was around a lot of police, around a lot of protesters. The initial realization for me was long before that. And that was during the press conference when uh, the reporter Brian Karam had asked Trump, uh, Trump, excuse me, had asked him if he would commit to a peaceful transfer of power and he would not. And from pretty much that moment forward, I knew that we were heading for some kind of collision. I just didn't quite expect it to be what it was, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that's a great point. I was I was going to make that point, which was so unique for me and all of us that we actually watched this in real time, not just yeah. on January 6th, right? We watched it before January. We watched, the, we watched the lead up to this in real time. And it was very frustrating to the, to the people who pay attention, yeah. knowing that this was a lead up. It was clear it was a lead up and it was clear where this was heading. And to watch it all happen was really quite astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a timeline um, that I believe just security had put together where they had mentioned that the very first mention of Stop the Steal that they had noted and their research had occurred in September of that year. It was steadily building for quite some time, even up to the point where Trump had that press conference and wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power. 
there were conference calls that I was a part of with different constitutional uh, advocacy organizations that were talking about this at length and were talking about their concerns, you know, around Trump's transition. You know, I remember that period pretty distinctly after the election. I think I maybe did four stories over the course of maybe four or five weeks where it was specific about the constitutional guardrails that were in place and what he could or could not do legally. And it just felt in a way like I was yelling into a void because it seemed so obvious to me, especially as we got closer and closer to the sixth, that it wasn't going to um, go about smoothly. Uh, and there were plenty of people that were waving the red flags and I, you know, it just, just wasn't able to be stopped at that point, I think. Right. Like a snowball rolling down a hill. Right. Where is the January 6th commission now? I know, you know, the basics, you know, I know there's got to be, has to be close to 400 witnesses uh, mm-hmm. already at this point. Where, where are we now? So you're correct. Uh, there are 400 witnesses that the committee has said that it's interviewed. Uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, he's a Maryland Democrat. He had mentioned that in interviews with the press in the last couple of days. And we're getting, I think we're getting pretty close to the public hearing period. I cannot sit here and tell you that I have this confirmed. Uh, there's going to be a certain date or anything like that. I know that they're shooting for it to be in the first quarter of this year. So I would imagine sometime in the spring, early March, maybe. But in my opinion, just kind of looking at the lay of the land and seeing all the pieces on the table, I think that we're getting closer toward that period because they've been progressively moving up the chain of command, getting closer and closer to Trump in terms of people that they've subpoenaed. I think it was just last night, they subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Boris Epstein, and Sidney Powell. But they subpoenaed those individuals. And these were all people that were reportedly at the Willard Hotel, uh, at the so-called War Room, plotting out the strategies for the election. And we're also, today is the deadline for the archives to remit over a portion of the tranche of documents that Trump has been trying to shield from the January 6th committee. So I think we're getting to that inflection point. And I know that a lot of people are impatient about this. And understandably, it's been a year. I think we're finally starting to get there. And as I kind of tell people all the time, and I know that it might not be popular, but it's a very important case. I would much rather that lawmakers take their time and anticipate all that they can uh, that will be sort of, I guess, pushed back on them when they finally do get these public hearings going, because it's going to be a full court press situation for members of the GOP to counter program those hearings. I cannot imagine that it would go any other way. So I think we're getting very close. I think they've laid out a lot of information. Um, The reporting has been extensive on this. There's been a lot of wonderful reporting that's been done and put out into the public record. Some of the documents that we've seen, like the text messages between people like Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, you know, it's, it's quite a case that they're trying to build here. And it's very politically delicate, given that, you know, we're involving fellow lawmakers. So exactly where we are, you know, it's hard to say. The committee does a very good job of keeping things very close to the chest and under wraps. But I think that we're getting quite close here, especially now that they've brought in uh, or brought a subpoena to Giuliani's desk. What's been frustrating on on my end is is watching mm-hmm. the normalization of certain things mm-hmm. that years ago, not many years ago, would have been just totally 
unbelievable. And, and really specifically, I'm talking about subpoenas being ignored. Yeah. Things like that request for documents, just ignoring subpoenas being held in contempt. These are things that as the more they happen and you hear about it each day, I think people who are not in tune to this, I, I, you know, from being a lawyer or, or a journalist, it, it just becomes normal and it becomes something that's right. done and something that's okay. And I just don't know, you know, the effect of that going forward. Yeah, I think that you're right. That's a big concern for me in terms of what the public cares about or what they're invested in. And obviously there was a big push to get the committee formed as quickly as possible, uh, but there was a lot of obstruction from GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and others to see that done. And I think that, you know, I'm speculating here and I'm not usually one to speculate a lot, but I will say that it does seem to me like it was understood by McCarthy and some of the other uh, Republicans that it would be politically beneficial for them to drag this out as long as possible. Not so much that people would forget necessarily. I think January 6th is not one of those dates that any American would really be able to forget easily. But I think that they were sort of hoping that exactly that dynamic you described is what would happen, is that people would get fatigued from hearing about the political infighting and Unfortunately, so many of these details get reduced down to palace intrigue. It was particularly frustrating for me in the summer um, when I was writing a lot about McCarthy's resistance to the committee, and I was following very closely how things were being formed and how members were being chosen and what the negotiations over the committee standards would be. It just sort of amazed me that there were a lot of folks in my industry who were not stating plainly, this is what Kevin McCarthy, in this instance, this is what Kevin McCarthy is doing to stop the formation of this committee and let me explain the exact details why. It was very like glossed over and sort of chalked up to being, oh, it's just typical Democrat-Republican infighting. And then I think it was maybe a week or two ago, McCarthy made a comment after the committee had issued a notice saying that they were interested to speak to him. And finally, someone at one of the larger networks had said it just plainly. You know, McCarthy had a chance to set up this committee the way that he saw fit, but he rejected all of these different opportunities to negotiate the terms of that deal. And it just sort of blew my mind that it had taken about nine or 10 months since the insurrection for that to become more commonplace. And I saw uh, someone else today mention that, which is a good thing. You know, I'm happy to see that because I do think it should be very clear to people that there was an effort to make it a bipartisan commission. Plenty of opportunities were presented and they were rejected because McCarthy and other Republicans very much wanted to broaden the focus of the January 6th committee to focus on things like violence that had been um, threatened upon other lawmakers. And of course, that's very important, but that wasn't what this committee was supposed to be about. And so Pelosi stuck to her guns and here's where we are. But all of that to say, you know, a lot of time has passed and in a 24-hour news cycle, it's really easy to lose things in the mix. My hope is that these weeks or two ahead of public hearings, whatever it might be, that the committee will sort of do their own work to really get people more engaged on this subject because it just seems like at this point, it's an uphill battle. I agree. Which is shocking. It's it is. shocking. I mean, it really is. I, I 
quite literally said today um, to somebody else, it kind of blows my mind that I have to convince people to care about the government being potentially overthrown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know. I know. I know. Just to switch gears a bit, yeah. you, you had an opportunity to sit down with one of the Capitol Police officers, Harry Dunn. I did. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I read that. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Officer Dunn is a very classy guy. He's a stand-up guy. Uh, he really struck me when I interviewed him as a person who is genuinely invested in justice, is genuinely interested in restoring some truth and accountability here. He's an officer who works outside all day long. You know, he's standing out in the cold this afternoon. Uh, we spoke briefly. You know, he's unusual. I've, I've interacted with a lot of police um, in D.C. I've not interacted with a lot of U.S. Capitol Police, even though I'm on the Hill. I've just never had a, an occasion to, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but of all the police I've interacted with, he is unique in that he um, he really puts himself to the side. And I think that's why it's kind of frustrating now to unfortunately watch him have to go through the motions with some of these uh, January 6th defendants. Like right now, I believe he's dealing with um, a January 6th defendant who claims that they were trying to help him uh, during the insurrection. But, you know, that clearly was not the case to hear him tell it. So it was, it was a very enlightening interview, and it was my pleasure to sit down and speak with him. I mean, so many, so many layers to that event. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's the personal layers and the... Just, I couldn't even imagine being a, a Capitol Police officer, you know, you swear to uphold your, you know, your oath and your duty to protect the Capitol and, and, mm-hmm. and your fellow citizens are, are, are there to kill you and to spit on you and call you a traitor. And I don't even know the psychological toll. I mean, is he okay? Uh, yeah, you know, he, he does seem to be doing good. And, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn or speak for him, but I, I can say certainly that in the interviews that he's been doing, uh, especially just before the anniversary, you know, he has uh, admitted he's gone to therapy to get some help. He promotes therapy for people who are you know dealing with things like PTSD or whatever other uh, mental health issues they might have. But yeah, you know, I think especially for him, um, and that's, of another part of what struck me specifically about his case uh, is because of his race and because of the racism that he had to endure. You know, it was a, it was a multi-layered offense that day and specifically because he had to deal with people who were hurling racial epithets at him. The thing that sort of blows my mind is, and I think this speaks to his character is that he can still go to work every day and protect these people in this building who are actively trying to shroud the January 6th investigation. And, and you know, not I only that, I Brandy, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I hate yeah. to interrupt you, but no, I don't want to lose my thought because not only are the people in, there are people inside there trying to do that, there are people inside who, who wouldn't participate in a moment of silence. Right. For the fall, you know, for the fallen officers. So, yeah, the image in my head, and I, I think the thing that's the most disturbing thing is, I actually, I lived long enough to see the Confederate flag in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I don't. I mean, I, you don't have to be, you know, really a history buff or a history major in college or anything to, to sort of grasp the the magnitude of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was a very sad day uh, for many reasons. And I think that it's that sort of thing, that magnitude of that event. I think it's really easy to reflect on that and think about think about it in a way where, oh, it's just horrible. It's a horrible thing that this happened. It's more than just a horrible thing. You know, it was it was a real sort of harm, I think, that was inflicted on the idea of our democracy, the idea of, you know, what it is that we're after, because obviously, you know, the country is not perfect. We still have quite a long way to go and quite a bit in pretty much every arena. You know, there's always room to grow and become better. Um, But there are just certain things that when you see them, they are just really striking. And seeing him uh, being so horribly abused uh, was very upsetting. And seeing those images is very upsetting. And I think that's a big part of why I'm so driven to sort of cover this and cover it the way that I cover it, uh, because I don't want to give room anywhere to racism or to extremism of any form. You know, I don't think that that is good for any of us. Yeah, for sure. So what's next for you? Are you, are you working on anything right now or? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really trying to get prepared for these public hearings, and I hope to be in a situation where I can physically be in the room and covering it as often as they're happening, and that includes a lot of prep on my side, uh, and that's consumed most of my focus. But I'm also, I, you know, I, I'm really trying to get a book together. Uh, there are a lot of different subjects that interest me, and some of them are more politically based than others. There are a lot of people in Washington that interest me. There's some lawmakers that I think have fascinating life stories that I would like to help them tell. So I'm just trying to figure out how to go about doing that, you know? Yeah, indeed. Well, I'm a big fan of your uh, your Twitter feed. Thanks so much. I, I put your, your link in the in the notes of, of this episode, but I'll also put in there where you can find Brandy and, and Brandy's work at the Daily Coast. But Brandy, thank, oh, thank you. thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, to talk to me a little bit about this. It was, it was really great. Oh, my pleasure. And I hope I'll be able to come back someday. Uh, for sure. For sure. So keep up the good work and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, David. Have a good All one. Right, take care. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.